0: The preaching of God's Word is from this chapter, Matthew 26, and particularly verses 53 and 54. So here's Christ in the garden, and Judas has betrayed him with a sign of peace, a kiss, and yet the sign of peace was to show forth the most wretched work of his. And here we have and one of his disciples elsewhere identified as Peter, who unsheathes his sword and swings at one of the enemies. And yet notice now Christ's word, verse 53 and verse 54. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? How then shall the Scripture be fulfilled, that thus it must The passage before us is doubtlessly familiar because we're familiar with the general scene. It's a scene that is wave after wave of astonishing uh, testimony of Christ Jesus and his commitment to his Father's will. And so we saw the wrestling that he experienced in Gethsemane, that as all of his humanity is coming under the pain that is to uh, be presented to him with force and crying out for some sense of relief, yet is he uh, being one consciously to bring himself under submission. O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Here is not his seeking of something else, but rather his bringing himself under and in submission to the wondrous will of God, that he should undertake the suffering that was due unto his people. Well, time and again in this chapter, as well as throughout the gospel narrative, we see Christ Jesus committed to the work of saving his people. And you'll notice the context, Judas is betraying him, he brings an armed guard, and it would have been no match, of course, to the few disciples with him. They would have been overtaken quickly. And yet Peter, out of some uh, zeal, unsheathes his sword and swings at Malchus, the high priest's servant, cuts off his ear, and elsewhere we're told that Christ heals this man and then speaks to Peter. And it's particularly these words that he uses in verses 53 and 54 that are for our attention this evening. Notice, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father? It says, look, Peter and those with me, if I wanted out of this, if I desired to avoid this, I could simply call upon my Father and in an instant, all of this would be removed. Notice the language that he says, and he, my Father, shall presently, The idea is, right now, immediately, give me more than 12 legions of angels. There's much to be made about the fact of the legions, these well-trained armies and the thousands that it represents. But notice, more than 12 legions. At one request, one expression, the Father would intervene and send angels right now. And yet, embedded in all of that is the fact that He isn't asking the Father for it. He's not approaching his Father. In Gethsemane, he didn't say, Father, now send the angels. I know what's coming. He knew what was coming. And yet, he was bringing himself unto the conscious embrace of it more fully. And now it has come. And notice why it is he doesn't shudder or shake or flinch. How then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled Thus, it must be. Christ knew all that the Scriptures testified of his suffering, of what he should experience, of the pain and shame and agony, all of it. He, of course, is the Word of God. Personally, so. And he is the one who revealed the very things that should come to pass. And yet, knowing these things as immensely painful, immeasurably so that it would be, yet he was committed to the completion of every jot and tittle of what was required by the word of God. He will not flinch to the right, to the left, backwards anywhere from what is ordained for him to incur. Notice Christ had means at his disposal, but he was fully committed to this work which procured our salvation. Now, this truth is beneficial in general, that we should see the unwavering commitment of Christ to undertaking all that is required for our salvation. When we see that, we see one who is incomparably loving of us. There is none who is so unflinchingly committed to our good as Christ is committed, as this proves and many other instances prove. But likewise, we as believers have an additional encouragement as we encounter in our experiences temptations and by our shameful commission and omission sin, that then can start to build up this suspicion in our thoughts is it so that Christ is committed to me? We see how sins still are committed when I see how I've stumbled to the right and to the left, when I see with what temptations I've been gripped, is there assurance that Christ is committed to me? And this is of no little help when we consider coming to the Lord's table. Because whereas the world is presumptuous and says, well, of course, I'm going to go, I'm going to partake, and I have this as my right, the conscientious partaker is aware that he has in himself no right to come apart from that which is given him by Christ. And so it is that which is founded upon Christ and his approach to us. And so to be assured of his commitment to our salvation is to secure unto us a great liberty of approaching near unto him with the sense of peace that he has purchased for us by the cross. Well, consider then this Savior committed to us by looking at two things this evening before closing with application. Firstly, the sufferings that were foretold. And secondly, the sufferings embraced. And when we see these two things put together, the understanding we derive is what he's presenting. He is committed to doing all that is needed, all that is promised, all that is prophesied, for the fulfilling of the Scriptures to the saving of his people. So notice, firstly, then the sufferings foretold. Christ's uh, way of response is by saying, listen, the Scriptures have stated this, and they must be fulfilled. I will not flinch. I will not waver in this commitment. Notice he knew of the betrayal in verse 24 of the same chapter. He says, The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, hear that language written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Of course, in the Psalms we sing of this betrayal and that testifying of what Judas would take up. Notice as well in verse 56, all this was done that the Scriptures of the Prophets might be fulfilled. And so all that's transpiring in time, as recorded here, is what was foretold in time previous. And Christ, as not only the revealer of God, but as a student incarnate now of God's Word, was well aware of all of these details. We don't have the time to survey every prophetic testimony of what he should suffer, but we've already had some before us. So if you look back at Psalm 22, you have some of the sufferings that were fulfilled. And so when Christ says that he's committed to these things being fulfilled, know what he's talking about. So if you look at Psalm 22, you can see a handful of these things. In verse 1, the epitome of it all, his being, as it were, uh, uh, given to himself to undertake all of the misery and agony of being made sin. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Why is it that You aren't supplying relief and comfort and peace and so on? Why is my soul overwhelmed with all of this agony? Why is my body handed over to nothing but pain? Some of you know something of pain. Some intensity of pain even. And some of you have chronic pain perhaps. But no one has the pain that Christ had while on the cross, agonizing pain to his body. And what made it worse than any other pain was that his outward pain was likewise joined with the inward pain of he who was of such nobility and purity and holiness as to now be face to face with sin and for that to be reckoned unto him and for his soul to be made an offering for sin, that he should undertake in himself all that was required. Notice as well in this psalm, verse 6, But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men. The praise of angels, the delight of the Father, is now made the reproach of men. And so we saw that in our reading from Matthew's Gospel, that he who is the Son of God, think of this, the high priest says, I adjure thee by the living God. If we step back and look at that, here's the high priest speaking to God incarnate and saying, I adjure thee by the living God. If you're the Son of God, tell us. And he says, you've said it. And I tell you that you'll see me, the Son of Man, at the right hand of the Father and coming in glory and so on as elsewhere testified. And what does the high priest do? He rips his clothes and says, this man has spoken blasphemy. He accuses the Son of God of the most wretched sin there is. Blasphemous idolatry. All of this is part of his suffering, and he's left to himself. He's delivered over and suffering immensely. Notice in the same psalm, verse uh, 11, he cries out, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. Notice this expression, there is none to help. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted in the midst of my bowels. And if we were to survey and consider all of these expressions, it is testifying of the immensity of our Savior's suffering. And He knew these things. You know, there are things that we might, quote, sign up for, having a little sense of what it might be like, but not really knowing the fullness of what it is until afterwards. So you hear this of young men as they sign up for military, and they think, well, you know, we'll become heroes and whatever else, and yet they go into active service, and then they see the horrors of mutilated bodies. They hear the shrieks of people that have been shot through. They have the terror of bombs exploding all around them, coming under fire, and realizing that they may never return, and that some whom they've uh, been friends with for the past number of months have now died and have left behind a wife and a mother and other such things. And now they're gripped with the horrors of war. They signed up for it, and they had a romantic view of it, but all of that comes shattering down when they experience it. We can sign up for things thinking ourselves sufficient when we don't understand how immensely difficult the thing is but here's the thing christ knew to every detail all that he should undertake he knew every aspect of suffering every physical dimension every spiritual dimension every relational dimension all of it everything there are some and oh what difficulty it is that we know some of this there's some who on one day stand before another and say, I take you to be my husband. I take you to be my wife. And everyone standing at that moment understands, well, it's possible perhaps this person won't keep his or her word. But they don't anticipate that the person won't. And if it comes to pass that that person doesn't, the immensity of shame and hurt And pain that grips that one is such that doubtlessly, if they had known that was going to take place before they took the vow, they would have said, I'm not going to go through it because the pain is too much. I can't bear it. And yet, Christ knew all the sufferings that He would undertake. And this is but a part of them. You'll notice In Psalm 69, you can see other aspects of this suffering as well. Psalm 69, the Scriptures must be fulfilled. What must be fulfilled? Even this, verse 2, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail While I wait for my God, they that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies, wrongfully are mighty. Then I restore that which I took not away. It goes on, notice verse 20, Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness, and I looked for some to take pity. But there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar. Well, we could multiply instances throughout the Psalms, but notice one portion well familiar to you in Isaiah 53, and you can see this even more so. Verse 5 it is that he shall be wounded for our transgressions, bruised. "...for our iniquities. He shall suffer chastisement. He shall endure stripes. He shall indeed have iniquity laid on Him. He will be oppressed and afflicted. And He will be brought as a lamb to the slaughter." And so forth, Being made, making His grave with the wicked, and so on. Bruised, battered, such as is bruising that He's unrecognizable." such as his stripes that his flesh is ripped from his back by the whips that would be used his hands pierced through and nailed to the cross his feet as well his crown of thorns placed upon his head all of this suffering and yet what stands out is not just the physical dimension but that all of this was making him a curse by and before God. The brethren, in ignorance, we might say, it'd be intriguing to experience the torment of hell for a season. Perhaps we would entertain the thought, and yet as we start to survey the Scriptures and come to realize the agony, the misery, the pain, the horror, the shame the unquenching fire, that is hell. We would understandably say, how foolish for me to think that I should experience that at all. But Christ, in essence, is taking up hell comprehensively while on the cross. He is bearing the totality of the torment of hell in His body and in His soul And the reason he's able to do so in such a small amount of time relative to everlasting time is because of the unique fact of the dignity of his person. And yet we ought not underestimate that all of these sufferings are real. They are truly and pointedly painful. And he knew every aspect of what should come to pass. I imagine that parents, if they have their children turn against them in such open and blasphemous thoughts, have the mind coming, the thought coming, you know, if I could go back in time and this not be changed, would I want to have that child because of the agony that they've brought to me? Now, we don't know the answers to these things, but the point is this. We, when face to face with pain flee from it. We would rather evade it. We would rather skirt by it. We would rather find a way to shorten it, to lessen it, to somehow reduce it, to somehow make it more manageable. We're told in the Scriptures, give wine and strong drink to those who, what? Are in the midst of suffering, that they may forget their misery. We find ways, as it were, to cope. And even on the cross, as is testified He's given a drink that would deaden the pain. And yet, so soon as it's put to His mouth, He turns from it and says, I will not reduce these things because I am committed to the fullness of suffering that is required by the Scriptures. But we must ask, why are the Scriptures requiring this? And the reason, of course, that the Scriptures are requiring this is because sin demands it sin demands this torment sin demands this agony sin demands this punishment sin demands all of it and here's the wonder the sufferings foretold are foretold of a savior who would undertake them in our place for his people And so these sufferings are being foretold not just generally, though we can derive some things regarding hell from the sufferings he faces. Think of it, he's isolated. Hell is no social place, it is isolation in agony, misery, and pain unending. He is shamed, publicly ridiculed, and hell is the place of unending shame. He is pained body and soul. And so is hell, the unending pain of body and soul. But all of that being true, the fact is the scriptures he's referencing are not just scriptures regarding, as it were, the coming reality of damnation, but as it is, damnation that he should undertake. The sufferings he should suffer. And who is it that's suffering? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the one who is perfect and pure, the Son of God, who is committed entirely to what is righteous. And remember when he came to John the Baptist and he says, Suffer to be so now, for we must do what? Fulfill all righteousness. Every breath, every thought, every word, every action was only and perfectly in conformity to the law of God. Never was he sinfully silent. Never was he sinfully speaking. Never was he sinfully, you know, just mulling over thoughts of things done against him and complaining. Never was he just wiping his hands clean in frustration. All was perfect with Christ, such that he is the spotless Lamb of God, And the scriptures foretold of him. And he says the scriptures must be fulfilled. The scriptures which were foretold are by him. Secondly, uh, the sufferings which are foretold are by him the sufferings which are embraced. The legions of angels stood ready. And what a scene that conjures up in our mind to see them in stately battle array, with flaming swords of fire, ready to be unsheathed, waiting for the word, at which they would instantaneously arrive for the deliverance of their King and Lord. And though they were ready and able, He embraced all the sufferings to come. He doesn't receive of the angels, Aid, he doesn't receive of his disciples aid, he doesn't receive of what he could have asked of his father, but instead, unwaveringly, he stands embracing every moment of suffering. But, brethren, this actually began well before, so you'll notice in Psalm 40 a psalm which is very dear, of course, to us because of its testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, and which is in part quoted in the book of Hebrews, holds before us Christ in verse 6. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burn offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, Lo, I come... In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Now we would be right to acknowledge that this does mean that the commandments are inscribed in his heart and he's finding it his delight to obey his God. But it doesn't merely mean that. He's coming in accordance to God's will. That is, his incarnation is taking part Because of God's will, he delights to do his Father's will and to perform all that is required of him. So in other words, it's not just the will as expressed in the Ten Commandments. It is his will as expressed by the Scriptures for the appointed Savior. Now think of that. He says, I delight to do thy will he comes to his incarnation with a readiness and a desire to fulfill all that's required. You know, in this world, you could take someone who's been raised up through all of the different uh, strata of uh, society and take one who has uh, risen up quite high and to say, you know, we're going to cause you to live for a year in the slums of some back uh, a part of a third world country. And you're going to experience the miseries of that life. You're not going to have any special treatment. You're not going to have any recourse to anything that they in the slums don't have recourse to. And it would be hard to find and even to think to find someone who would say, I'll do that. They'll leave their you know, enormous wealth. They'll leave their many privileges of health and strength and nourishment and other such things and live for a year in the midst of the slums of some third world country. But here is something infinitely more the Son of God eternal, who is the delight of his Father and in fellowship with the Spirit and is the object of the praise of the angels unendingly so, willingly says, I will take to myself this lowly nature of dust. And in that lowly nature of dust, will I fulfill all that's required. And what's more, I delight to do it. Now, you'll see two things coming together. It's not as if the sun is saying to the Father, you're cruel and wicked to desire the damnation of sinners. The Father's will is to appoint the Son to be the Savior. And the Son is coming gladly to do it. He doesn't have to be, as it were, uh, tricked into it. He doesn't have to be reasoned into it. He delights to do the will of His Father. And so it is, He enters upon all the sufferings of it. So, the children will remember as we, a few weeks back, spoke of the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the various steps that He was born in a low condition, ultimately to being dead and buried and remaining under the power of death for a time. All aspects of the humiliation, all of the shame, all of the sufferings Christ says, I delight to do it. Now, it raises the question, why is Christ so committed to the will of His Father that the Scriptures should be fulfilled? Why is it that the Scriptures testify and He gives evidence of delighting to do the will of His Father? Well, one reason is embedded in that. The Scriptures are the revelation of the will of God. And you'll remember, His disciples found Him and they hadn't eaten. And, he says, I have meat and drink that you know not of. My meat and drink is what? To do the will of him who sent me. He lived by his Father's will. He delighted as life itself in his Father's will. And this, of course, is to be made increasingly the experience of his people. That we are to learn what it is to live by the will of god to find this to be sweeter to our taste than honey from the honeycomb to be as nourishment to us and our souls and oh what a delight it is as the believer grows and day by day is experiencing a bit more of that but what we have by degree at best christ had in perfection from the beginning so we get things out of order right we have to eat we have to drink And this is, of course, right, lawful, good, and to be enjoyed. However, we often get the order off, and we put our physical needs ahead of our spiritual needs. And so this is one thing that Christ is correcting again and again in the Scriptures. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Well, he says that after he says, take no thought what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink or wherewithal ye shall be clothed. And he's helping us not to think, well, we shouldn't want to eat food or shouldn't want to drink water or be clothed. None of that's what he's getting at. He's saying, your priorities are to be reformed. You're to love God Long for God. As your body needs physical sustenance, protection, and care, so does your soul. And your soul is primary. This is not to turn us into the Gnostics and say, you know, matter, bad, soul, good. It's to indicate That the soul is indeed that which is of nobility, given of the Father, and a gracious gift which permeates the man and gives guidance and direction and so on. And so it is that Christ says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Well, Christ was no mere preacher of a way without first walking that way. And so again and again, what do we see him doing? Taking in God's will. Embracing God's word. Living by his word. When he's faced with temptation by Satan, he answers by God's word. He overcomes by God's word. He's living by God's word. He's going to the synagogue. Here is the Son of God going to the synagogue and taking in God's word and ultimately then preaching God's word. Well, He delights in his Father's will. And this is part of the reason why it is that he is so committed to it. His Father has appointed him to this day. What shall I say? God, deliver me from this? But for this purpose, this hour, this time, have I come. This is the point. This is the purpose of my coming that I should embrace these things long before you can conceive in all eternity, in the perfect fellowship of the eternal Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Without time, without process of time, the Father, Son, and Spirit were there delighting in this plan of salvation. And for eternity, the Son has been saying, I delight to do it. And now the time comes and Christ takes all of the agony and puts it upon Himself and says, It is now. I embrace it because it honors my Father. One thing we see here is just how perfectly Christ does what we do not. Christ perfectly takes the will of the Father and says every aspect, even the aspect which my flesh, my body, nothing sinful in Christ, my humanity would recoil against, yet I take it and say, yes, Lord, because I delight in it. It's your will. Whereas we flee from his will. And oh, what shame it is that oftentimes we flee when there's no suffering to come. We turn away from it because we simply don't want to do what he says to do. Christ stands right in the crosshairs of all of the agony to come and says, I stand here because I love and delight in my Father. What you see in Christ is the perfect substitute fulfilling what you and I ought to have done, and yet he doing it perfectly. But there's more. Because as some of the scriptures we looked at testify, this will of his Father which he delights to do is a will which not only spoke of suffering. Do you remember Psalm 22? There's the suffering, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But it turns in verse 21. And it testifies of Him being again in the congregation and speaking of the Lord and singing His praise and testifying to God's people of the work of God and how He says toward the end of it, all ends of the earth shall turn unto the Lord and shall give homage to Him, shall worship Him. Why is Christ embracing the suffering? Well, look again at Isaiah 53 and you can see just with what great clarity this is presented to us. Christ is suffering he is the suffering servant this is my servant who shall deal prudently verse 13 of, Psalm, or of Isaiah 52 he'll sprinkle many nations and so on but notice all of this suffering comes to this point in verse 10 it pleased the lord to bruise him he hath put him to grief but oh look when thou shalt make his soul an offering For sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Here's the point. The scriptures don't only speak of suffering, they speak of suffering for salvation, and they speak of salvation of his beloved people. In other words, the scriptures testify of the one suffering, suffering in the assurance that he is going to make the payment for his people, that they should be saved, We see this in John 17 in the prayer. He's not praying for the world indiscriminately. He's praying very clearly for those whom the Father gave Him. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but them whom Thou gavest Me. And He prays, and think of this, Father, I pray that they would be with Me, that where I am, they may be with Me, and behold My glory. This was before his suffering. He knew of these things. He delighted in these things. He delighted in the people for whom he was suffering and for whom he would lay down his life. And he laid down his life and endured the suffering, the shame of the cross, despising the shame of the cross, as Hebrews tells us, for what? For the joy that was set before him. Now, it would be right to say there is this infinite joy of the Son and the Father's will being done. And all of that's true. But embedded in the Father's will is His love set upon a people who would be saved. Christ loves that and delights in that. And so He embraces this suffering in love to His Father and to His Father's chosen ones. He delights in His people whom He is suffering for. Now, We can't be, with any perfection, assured of what we would do, but it's almost a natural instinct for a mother or father to be willing to run into the pain that their child might face and suffer it for them instead of their children. And so this comes up, you know, a child hurts themselves, and a mother will often find themselves saying, I wish it were I that were suffering instead of you. Or a disease is upon a loved one, and a father says, O son, if God would, I would be the one willing to take up this disease instead of you. There's something there. Why? Because there's something of love there. Well, here is Christ who loved and loves the church, his bride. And he says, I will fulfill this because I love you you what's his point he is embracing the suffering here because he is embracing his people in love he's taking his people as it were and saying i am thy salvation i am become thy salvation i am thy strength i am thy song and he is the one who delights to embrace his people and the suffering his people deserve thus By embracing this, what is Christ doing? He's securing the benefits which the scriptures speak of. The scriptures tell us that there are benefits to come to us. By the knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Well, the justifying of many doesn't come without Christ embracing the suffering and all agony. The Uh, eternal life and dwelling in heaven that's promised doesn't come unless it is that the Christ, the Son of God incarnate, suffers in all of these appointed ways. And Christ is expressing this, yes, Father, as You will and as it will be for their good. And what we see here is the perfect illustration of one who perfectly loves God and perfectly loves God. His neighbor. Everything in perfection so clearly testified. Christ shall be exalted. So it is. Again and again in the Scriptures, Psalm 16 speaks of, of course, how it is that He shall be brought to the right hand of God. And His return testifying in various places in the Scriptures as well. All of that comes after the suffering. So when Christ embraces the suffering, he's also embracing, notice this this passage even says this. It doesn't say simply, you know, how then shall the scriptures of my suffering be fulfilled? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? And embedded in that is everything that the scriptures testify is going to come to pass, that thus it must be. Yes, it must be that I suffer now, but that's just part of of what is to come. And so it is that Peter, of course, in his sermon in the book of Acts, will testify of Christ rising from the dead as prophesied in the Scriptures. And so here Christ is saying, this part is necessary. I give myself to this because there's also more to come that will be fulfilled by me as well. In other words, if you see the pattern you don't see a Savior who was committed to the will of God for our salvation. You see, rather, the testimony of a Savior who is committed to the will of God for our salvation. What does that mean? Well, it's true. He was committed to the suffering, and he's fulfilled that. And what a blessed testimony upon his lips to tell us, "...Thy it is finished." my suffering, atonement's made. Yes, I must be buried and redeem indeed my people from the grave, but I've made payment. My blood has been shed and now I've died in their place and am yet to arise in due time. It is finished. He's made atonement. And oh, blessed atonement it is. But in doing this, He is looking as well to all aspects of what is promised and prophesied to come to his people. And so, brethren, where this puts us then is in a present understanding that Christ remains committed to the fulfilling of the Scriptures. So what does that mean? Well, there's a lot, of course, the Scriptures hold forth. But where is he now? He's seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He's reigning over all things. He's making intercession for us. He's beckoning to us, yea, commanding us to draw near to God by Him. He's promised that all that we stand in need of shall be provided. And all of these words, understand what Christ is helping us see, must be fulfilled. Christ must reign until all His enemies are made a footstool beneath Him. Christ must return and bring ultimate deliverance to us, His beloved people. But it also means that Christ must sanctify His people. Christ must dispense upon us those blessings of the new covenant stored up for us and purchased for us by His work. In other words, in seeing this, what we see is not a Savior who was committed, But a Savior who is committed, this is a window into our Savior to see that he stands committed still. Think of the blessed simplicity of Hebrews, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. As he stood committed here at the very hour of his betrayal and the very beginning of the immensity of suffering that should fall upon him, He hasn't changed. He's still committed for us and our salvation. So, here we have, of course, a great testimony for the believer that it is we have a Savior who is committed to us. Oh, that with Paul we could say, Jesus Christ who loved me and gave Himself for me. Because in being able to embrace that as a believer, we then have the key that opens all the assurances of comforts and blessings in this life for the rest of our lives and through eternity. To have this assurance is to give us liberty to draw near to him for what he's promised. And this is something that Satan is ever attacking. Don't go to Christ. You're not worthy to go to Christ and so on. But Satan never reminds us that it's Christ who's committed to us. Satan never says something like, well, you shouldn't go, but don't worry, Christ is committed to you, so he'll come. We ought to reason from what Christ is and what Christ has made known and what Christ has done. Christ stands here committed to all of the suffering and for what was he to suffer? For all all of our wretched rebellions and wickedness. And yet so committed was he to it in love that he said, I won't call upon the legions of angels. I won't rest upon my disciples to defend me. I won't flee away. I won't by my own divine power take life from these who would dare raise their hand against me. He stands committed then. And brethren, here's the key. How he stands committed then is how he stands committed now, albeit with this difference. He's no longer in his humiliation But now in his exaltation, and when it is that we gather in the Lord's mercies at the table of the Lord, we gather to the table of a committed Savior for us, that though we are unworthy, yet we have to remember, of course we're unworthy. The very fact of the crucifixion is the unending testimony that we aren't worthy of ourselves, But our reason for coming to the table is not because of our worthiness. It's because of our Savior. It's because of His commitment, His uh, unending commitment to all that is required to sustain and sanctify and save us unto the last day. So believer, here is encouragement for your coming to the Lord's table. Has not Christ proved His love to you. Here's one instance among many others. And it's true, we can acknowledge we've proved our imperfect love to Him because of our sins. Yet He knew of our sins. He bore our sins out of commitment to us and our salvation. The Scriptures tell us we love Him because He first loved us. Here we see the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ to us. And as it has its work in us, it's to draw us to love Him. And oh, we love Him and so we draw near to Him and say, oh Christ, as You have loved me and given Yourself for me, so I come to You receive more of Your benefits and more of Your fellowship. But most of all, I come to know more of You. I long to know You, to be with You, to embrace You, to be embraced by You. Shall You not come in faith Boldness of faith, even, because of your Savior and his commitment to you. Well, oh, for unbelievers, think what a foolish and pitiable state they are in, that they stand without such a Savior. They stand to endure and face the depths of damnation without one standing for them. Oh, if one is here as an unbeliever, see how clearly you stand in need of this Savior, this Savior who is a Savior of sinners, without whom you shall indeed suffer the immeasurable sufferings of damnation. But the believer is before us as we think of the Lord's table. And here is great cause for us to come expectantly Because though our commitment grows and weakens and grows and weakens, ultimately by God's grace sustained and growing, think of this for a moment. Christ's commitment to us does not grow because it can get no more. It can gain nothing else. It cannot increase. His commitment is perfect to us. His love is full to us. And so, brethren, as we hope to come to the Lord's table tomorrow, come with this in your soul's grasp, that your Savior is committed to your salvation. He's purchased it, and he is committed day by day to applying it until the day when he returns in glory. Would you stand with me for prayer?